are you? It was a question I was asked a lot growing up. As a person of mixed identity, strangers seemed confused by the way the divine had architected my face, as though I was responsible for it, as though I was some species other than human. As a child, Dr. Sarah Gaither was asked those questions too. It's why she chose to study those kinds of experiences in the lab. Growing up, I was constantly questioned, particularly when I was out with my father, because he didn't physically match me. We also had lots of negative encounters as well. People assuming he was kidnapping me at the shopping malls. Those kinds of encounters when you're a young kid are difficult to process, which is a big reason why now my work focuses a lot on these identity denial experiences. Uh, so when we do question people, what are you? Where are you from? Are you sure your dad's your dad? Are you sure you're black? These kinds of questions are very powerful for me who presents as white, right? That was my entire childhood. Dr. Gaither's research focuses on how contact with diverse others shapes our social interactions and how having multiple racial or multiple social identities affects different types of social behavior. How do we see others? How do they see us? And how do we see ourselves? I'm Dr. Sarah Gaither, and this is a lesson on belonging. What's your earliest memory of being creative? For me, I grew up in a a mixed race household. My dad's black, my mom's white. And so my family did a really good job, I think, in making sure I had toys from every different background, which caused me to think creatively in weird ways earlier on, which friend groups would play with which friend groups within my toys and creating kind of new imaginary contexts for them to interact with each other in this kind of mixed race world. And so I think for me, those are some of my most creative things is just finding new uses for things in my playroom for my different toys and dolls to interact with. So I'm mixed as well with the same combo, white mother, black father. You present as white, Caucasian. I can present as white when I have my hair straightened, not today, when I don't have a tan. And I'm curious where you asked the famous question, what are you? Yeah. So what are you is something I even study for a living now in my lab as a professor. Growing up, I was constantly questioned, particularly when I was out with my father, since he didn't physically match me. We also had lots of negative encounters as well. People assuming he was kidnapping me at the shopping malls. Those kinds of encounters when you're a young kid are difficult to process, which is a big reason why now my work focuses a lot on these identity denial experiences. Uh, So when we do question people, what are you? Where are you from? Are you sure your dad's your dad? Are you sure you're black? These kinds of questions are very powerful. And for me, who presents as white, right, that was my entire childhood. I had a younger brother growing up, and he looks more mixed than I do. So he got very different treatment from people in society, and he was socialized differently by my parents as well. So I think those, to me, are these experiences that sort of shape who it is I am and who it is I think I should be, even if outwardly I don't reflect my my heritage and how I actually identify. Can you explain what identity denial is? Yeah, identity denial would be anytime you disclose something about yourself to someone else and that someone else just simply doesn't accept it. They say you're actually not X, right? Those kind of declarative statements. This is commonly studied within the psychology field with Asian American individuals who often are assumed to be foreign and don't speak English or they're not American. So 
are you sure you speak English would be a denial of your English and American abilities and heritage. So any of those types of encounters where it questions your own background, even if you've already disclosed that to someone. So this is obviously what sparked you moving into this field of study in school, correct? Yes, yes. So growing up hyper aware of race relations and my visible and invisible racial identities, right? On knowing that if I looked differently, how different my life would be. And growing up aware of the privilege, looking so white, I have had an easier life in a lot of ways. And so grappling with that is something else that's really motivated me in trying to understand what are the experiences growing up that we have that shape how we think about race and how we categorize each other. Was privilege part of your conversation? Because I feel like it's new to the conversation right now. I don't know how old you are, but looking at siblings and sibling treatment, you'd be aware of that. And you said your parents were socializing your brother different. In what ways? Yeah. So I think for me, I was socialized more in preparing for being a woman in society and looking at this white woman. I got prepared for certain gender instances of bias. My brother looking more black mixed than I do, much more Afrocentric features. He was prepared for the preparations of bias and discrimination he might face, right? Being followed around in stores, those kinds of things that people within the black community are often socialized with, but I was not going to experience those things. So I think that comparison made race really salient to me in different ways. I think my family tried really hard in making sure that my brother and I were treated as equals as much as we could be, but also made me aware that I really was different than he was, right? And I was going to face different things because of the systems and the racism that we had in our society. My grandmother, my dad's mom was a very light skinned black woman as well. And so I think having that on my family side, as well as part of these discussions of how easy her life was, where my grandfather was darker skinned, They would tell me stories all the time growing up of how she was the one that went to the grocery stores all the time because my grandfather was too dark skinned to be treated well. Because we were in this mixed race dynamic, this mixed race household, it made these kinds of conversations about racial privilege and skin tone and access to different venues based on ease, right? A very common form of discourse within our family structure. It's interesting because I am... Canadian, born in Canada. And I uh, this question of being mixed and how you identify was really prevalent for me. And I had a mentor who was also mixed, but identified as Black because her husband was Black. Her children were just shades. I loved that family so much because when I went to events there, everybody was a different shade. And I felt like true belonging for the first time. However, it wasn't until moving to the United States that I actually felt confident identifying as Black because I finally saw so many, quote unquote, light-skinned Black people in a way that I really hadn't experienced before in Canada. There were just like, I felt like a handful of us. And again, we could claim more confidently mixed without... I felt it being offensive somehow when I went to the United States. It felt wrong to me to say mixed because I felt like I was trying to claim some privilege, even though that was not my intent at all. It was simply trying to reflect my grandmother's love in my story. However, I also know that I felt like it derails the conversation because I want people to understand that Blackness looks like many different things. So I don't know if that's something that you've come upon in your research. And obviously you're looking in the United States. When I saw Meghan Markle, and I know you have written an op-ed about her as well, 
say she claims BIPOC and Black, it and BIPOC is new for me. And again, somebody in Canada the other day on a thread was saying, oh, that's an outdated term. And I said, actually, it's not, sweetheart. It just depends on what part of the country you're in and what, where you're going to speak. And maybe you think it is in Canada, but it's not in the United States. It's still used and it's still used quite a bit or multiracial. There's so many different things that we're saying, but this being able to claim both and in, in a very public, visible sense was interesting to me. So A, I think for me growing up, so I'm 37, just to date myself to put this into context, there were no books on being multiracial. There were no toys mm-hmm. that were multiracial for me growing no. up. I had Mariah Carey was my biracial idol, and I really resonated yes. with her because she did look more white, but she had this Black gospel influence, right, in her music. Right. She was this often like common conversation piece in our household as well and talking about this other biracial person who was public and present in the media but other than her there wasn't and then everybody take and then you probably took heat for liking Mariah Carey which I did too you take heat for it but no that's why exactly why I loved her anyway sorry go ahead ahead no I mean you few idols right to latch yourself onto when you are a mixed race or biracial kid so I didn't use that word like I never called myself biracial when I was younger I knew I was lots of different races but that wasn't a term for me growing up and I think that correlates really nicely with the fact that it wasn't until recently that people could even mark more than one race on the U.S. census and so we've Mm -hmm. even though mixed race people have existed forever since slavery right this isn't a new group but no. we are seeing this shift and change in the labels that people use and the willingness to acknowledge the fact that we do belong to multiple different racial backgrounds. For me as a, a researcher on this topic as well, it's complicated because not all mixed race people identify as mixed race, right? They may only mm-hmm. claim one part of their racial background. Some people love the term biracial. Some people prefer multiracial. In Canada, they use mixies a lot, as I'm sure you've heard yeah, growing up do. there. I, I, do. I like mixie because I don't like... The idea that I don't believe there is more when race is a construct. And that's another conversation that I can have when we will have. But this is this idea, yes, to be able to claim something that you are, it is, it is relatively new, but you, you still take heat for that too. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than? And it's like, no, I am simply acknowledging both in a way that I wasn't allowed to before. Yeah. And I think as it relates to this identity denial question, the other thing that I struggle with, my research struggles with a lot is if you do claim being multiracial or mixed, there's an assumption from some people, not all people, right? That it's a means you're devaluing your blackness. So you're not proud enough of your blackness because you're also claiming your whiteness. And I, I struggle with those types of sentiments sometimes where I understand colorism, right? is a huge issue all over the world. And in the US in particular, we, we are constantly hiring lighter skinned minorities and mixed race people to play black characters. And so that conflict, I think, ends up kind of overriding some of these discussions sometimes and not giving people the autonomy that I really strive for in my research and my own lived experience and letting people identify how they want to identify. So multiracial people are the fastest growing demographic in the country. The U.S. Census Bureau projects that the multiracial population will triple by 2060 and not much research has been done on this group until you. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? That's the first Big question. So I think for me, I never thought I'd study being biracial as a biracial person. It was all on a whim after I graduated from undergrad and some gap year studying opportunities. And 
there was some mixed race research and so sociology I think has done a much better job historically than psychology so I think in psychology there's less research but sociology and human development and education work has done some work on mixed race populations I want to make sure we acknowledge those other disciplines but I think one reason why psychology and other fields have struggled with identifying this group is because they're hard to categorize I think the easiest way of thinking about this is when you think about health disparities and health research that yes, race is a social contract, but we also know there are certain health disparities based on people's race and ethnic backgrounds at the same time. And so when you're looking at healthcare findings, most mixed race people have either been wrongfully categorized into one racial group or another, meaning we know far less about what it means to be multiracial. So for me, for example, my dad is a type two diabetic. And so I've asked doctors, does that make me just as likely to be diabetic? Am I 50% as likely, even though we don't really think about race, right, in those quantities? And so I think that difficulty in categorizing what a mixed race person is makes it difficult to get to firm conclusions. And that's what science needs is clear conclusions. And the multiracial demographic doesn't make it so easy. So you speak about race as being binary and a social construct, which I also do believe. So can you explain what that means to you? Yeah, when something's socially constructed, it means that our society has constructed what it means to be white, what it means to be black, these certain characteristics or traits that go along with these groups where biologically there's not any reason for us to think any of these groups should be different. And I think the U.S. Census is the perfect example of this where over time we have created what it means to be certain racial and ethnic groups. Whether or not we think Hispanic is a race versus an ethnicity is one thing that's a hot conversation topic right now. And being multiracial, just in 20 years ago was the first time you could mark more than one race on the modern day census. But if you look way back in slavery times, there was a mulatto category, right? Mm -hmm. So we acknowledged this group at one point then stopped acknowledging them on our forms, which shows that the power is in policymakers' hands to equate to what these racial group identifications and labels really are in our society. Same thing goes for gender as a social construct too. Sex is biology, but what we think a man is and what a woman is in our society is very much constructed on the norms that we've passed down from generation to generation. And I remember declaring this in company of this doctor once and he was like, well, that's not true because if I had an African patient and a white patient, I would treat them differently. And I didn't actually have the language at that point, but from a biological standpoint, there's 0.2% of a difference between us. But what does impact is our geography. So the geography of where we come from and also our blood type. And there are many, and we see this with transplant patients. There's been quite a lot of work in the group we're both in for mixed race people is that when it comes down to getting a transplant, so I'm glad you brought up this health issue, it can be so complex because we have to match on so many different levels. And and I think about, I, I remember there was somebody looking for a match of somebody on the Chinese Trinidadian side and black. And I knew someone and I asked them and they were, I said, do you know, you might do a blood test for this person because they're, they're rare. They're looking for a match. And they were so offended that I would even ask them for a stranger. And I said, I'm sorry, it just struck me that your mix is identical to this person. These are very practical facts of the things that do happen. I I wanted to get into the binary piece though. So can you just tell me a little bit about that? We talk about race, especially being biracial. We often focus on the black-white binary in the U.S. and we ignore the other kind of historical constructs. Obviously, there are many other racial and ethnic groups in the United States, but 
the United States tends to focus a lot of their diversity related questions on the white black gaps or white black interactions. And so it's you're either white or you're black for these discussions. And that's where I think these discussions regarding being biracial black white, they are on average and more popularly reported on census forms. We have more contact with them than other types of multiracial groups. And so I think that's shifting some of our language around how fixed race is even considered in our country now that we have more and more um, active media discussions about what it means to be multiracial. So my hope is, is well, we'll try and not bridge the racial gap, but at least open up people's perspectives that race is more than these fixed boxes that society mm-hmm. likes to try and put everyone in. Yeah, I know so many Asian white children, so many Jewish Asian children. It's this multi, this multi-ethnic piece that is really, it is exploding. So did you coin the term identity flexibility? I wouldn't say I did. I think for me and my work, what I'm really trying to coin is this multiplicity of belonging. In psychology, we're really obsessed with having one in-group and one out-group. So you're either X or you're not, right? And I think being multiracial, studying multicultural and multiracial people, it's really clear to me that we are much more complex than one in-group and one out-group. We have multiple groups that make us who we are. And so just to explain, identity flexibility is I can be a mom and I can also be a professor and I can be a mixed person and I can be a basketball coach and I can be many different things. Yep. yep. Is that right? Yep. And any moment, depending on the context or the social situation you're in, right, one of those identities might become more active in your mind than the other. It might shift your behavior more than the other. But what our work shows is that if you think about your multiple identities, regardless if your race is included in that or not, we actually show that can boost flexible thinking and creativity, right? You actually think more flexibly about yourself and this allows you to problem solve more effectively. So are these there's these kind of transferable skills and thinking about the fact that we're not just one box at a time, but you can literally think outside of the box more easily when you do that about yourself too. I read in an interview, you said, we put things into smaller categories, which means we're overlooking the fact that we're not just the one thing at a time. It's not just one part of you that's causing you to be a friend or an enemy to someone. It's all parts of yourself coming together in one moment. And since I read this piece, I have been actively thinking about the identities that I have and for forgetting certain ones. Oh, I have that identity. And oh, I'm a member of this group. And oh, I used to be this person, this was more prevalent in my conversation at this time in my life. And it produced X results because when we talk about transformation and visibility, identity is one of the most important things that shapes our willingness to be visible because it's how, as you said, this multiplicity of belonging, and I love that expression, it's how you claim you belong or how you feel you belong, which is really important. Yeah, we all just want to belong. That's the human universal facet. We want to feel like we fit in. We want to feel like people understand us and see us for what we are. And yeah, my whole thing is just to make sure we're, whenever we're running a research study or you're always considering the whole person recruiting for any type of opportunity. One of the things you look at is what contexts in particular may influence how people perceive or socially categorize each other across groups or boundaries. Would you speak about that? 
the context can shift all kinds of things. And one thing our lab focuses on a lot is the social threat that people experience. So whenever someone is threatened, and it could be threatened on any identity you have, there's usually two responses that you can have in that moment. You either, if you're a high status group member or majority group member, you tend to want to protect that identity, right? You want to maintain your status quo. That causes you to become more exclusionary, right? You're going to be say, oh, no, none of you are actually enough like me. But if you're a lower status group member, what a lot of research would suggest is when you feel threatened, you actually end up becoming a little more fluid in who you let into that in-group because you, you need a little more help in order to overcome whatever that threat may be. And so our lab looks a lot at these kinds of identity-threatening experiences, see how it shifts, how we categorize racially ambiguous people, for example. So when you're racially threatened, are you more likely to see a lighter skinned minority as darker than they actually are? And that's what we find with white perceivers in particular. Minority perceivers tend to see racially ambiguous people more often as white when they're under threat, as this outgroup and, and other ways. That's one way we try to look at these kind of social, malleable social perceptions. In 2020, you did a new working paper where you were presenting evidence detailing the relationship between an individual's FICO scores, wealth accumulation, race, and incarceration history. So I want to, before, because I was just reading the results going, oh my God, is ever incarcerated, does that mean we're in prison at the moment? Wherever, they could have had at any point in their life been incarcerated. At any point in their life. So you're saying never incarcerated Blacks, despite having more assets and less debt, have average FICO scores that are similar to whites who have ever been incarcerated. Yep. Yeah. So the And the difference is 77 points on average or slightly less than half the difference between never incarcerated blacks and ever incarcerated whites, 170 points. And I, I, so uh, <laughs> how is this possible and happening? I'm just in shock. It's complicated. That paper in particular, Sandy Darity is really interested in this notion of wealth versus income, right? And so there's income, which is what you're paid as one form of thinking about how much money you have, but your wealth is property you own, cars you own. And what we know is very different based on racial group and history, right? Which is the big discussions linked to reparations today is black mm -hmm. individuals tend to have less wealth, way less wealth than white individuals. And so when you're applying for credit cards, when you're applying for loans, you have to put in your wealth and what you actually own in a lot of these calculations. So yes, it's a machine. And the machine might not be aware of these racially, historically aspects of our, our system that are biased, but I'm still going to have less wealth and less assets to put into these calculations in the first place, which is why my FICO score is going to be way lower than even a white person who has been incarcerated because they just haven't had enough equal access to maintain wealth or gain wealth in the first place. I just, yeah, just the things that are being uncovered in this moment. It's hard to take in. You you talk about yourself as a researcher and you said being worried that there's a stigma and that there are certain types of studies that you're hesitant to run for fear of finding out something bad about the group that you're in. And does this feel like one or something sad? For me, it feels like something sad as well. Like the, just the, the level of inequity. You know, I was out the other day in Atlanta and this white guy in his 1980s born was upset because he was feeling like I didn't do any of this and now I'm being 
persecuted for my whiteness. And I said, I, I understand that, but imagine historically how many years of persecution other people have experienced, but that's not enough for that person in this moment. It doesn't understand the privilege or maybe it's so complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. I think for me as a, a me searcher, as you say, I, I often ask my question whenever I'm starting a new project, I try and think, Worst case scenario, if I get data that says X, am I okay publishing that next to my name? Is that something that I would be proud and proud? I, I use that word loosely in that, yes, some of my findings are sad. And just because they're sad doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be published. Because what I've been very privy to across my kind of young academic career is that without data, without numbers, people don't believe stories about inequity, right? They need to see actual numbers behind the inequities that we have in order for our systems to have any chance in ever changing. And if, even if a finding is sad, like this FICO score result, that's still important information that our society needs to know in order for us to grow and actually really recognize and accept the fact that we have these built-in inequities that are still here. I think what happens to people though, is that they receive the weight of it and then they don't know what action to take to fix it. And so it might be anger. It might be acting out in a way that doesn't end up serving them, unfortunately, and doesn't end up moving the problem forward. And I think about this with young people in particular, right? Because you are just understanding the weight of inequity in the world on so many levels. Is there anything you suggest about how people, and I, I do think just being present and visible and living your story in this moment, there is something in that too. And I do believe even having the right to live as a mixed person in this moment, however you identify to simply be and to tell your story from your perspective, there is a privilege in that. And there is an important, if unspoken, historical or what will be historical later in moving this forward toward equity. Race is always complicated and how you think about different findings, how you interpret them personally, whether you internalize them. The way I deal with findings in my own work that make me feel sad about myself, about society, about the world, is I try and think about what is something else I can do today that at least at a micro individual level can help. I might not be able to solve racial systemic issues today, but is there one small thing I can do? Donating money to a cause that's in line with some of these new inequities that I've uncovered, or is there someone I know within my social network and I can bring them food or dinner, right? Something like that. And you think about these small actions and what I think people undersell is the power that these small individual actions can have on a global scale. Every single person did one or two acts of kindness, mm -hmm. especially across group lines, to someone who is less fortunate than you in some way, it would cause a huge ripple effect across society. And it would. that's the way I deal with it. That's what helps me sleep at night in lots of ways is trying to make sure that the privilege I do have, I can use it in ways to try and benefit others. That's my own approach, but I know it might not work for everyone. No, I believe in that too. And I've been talking about the notion of every other woman, that if every one of us did just, we took on one thing that pissed us off in terms of problems, just one thing, and we went at it, we would have solutions to things. And there are, we're already engaged in that. Many of us are engaged in it, but I, I do know it can also feel 
so heavy, especially with all of these shootings going on. The story of race is woven into all of these shootings in many different ways. And it is, it's exhausting. Yeah, they're always, I think the more and more of these I do, I find some similarities with others and dissimilarities with others. And again, that's what I think makes this so complicated to try and capture Mm -hmm. is no one's one experience of being biracial or multiracial is the same. No, and I don't know if you've noticed in, especially in the mixed group, like what I find when I'm in there now, it's a lot more contentious than it was before. And I don't know what that is, if it's younger people are more politicized or educated and informed around their identities. But I do find that it's definitely a lot more volatile in there than it used to be. And I'm not sure what that's about. Yeah, I think there's more discussions about what it means to be certain racial groups, right? The social construction, people are trying to break it down, right? Just like the gender binary, everyone's trying to break it down. We're seeing with sexual orientation increases in younger populations claiming to be on, you know, LGBTQ more so than before as well. And a lot of people rejecting these binaries. So I think that's what's happening is this younger generation of people really just want all boxes to go away. But at the same time, we're also finding our financial resources are getting strained in new ways. And so these census changes is now taking money away from some minority groups because now all of a sudden we can mark more than one box. So does that mean black people get less money for whatever sources that, you know, the government needs it for now that they can mark more than one. So those, I think the zero sum game, again, as it relates to these notions of an oppression Olympics of which group has it the worst, which is a horrible game for anyone to play, (laughs) but it is where I think we are as a country right now in who's getting what privilege and who's getting access to what. And that constant comparison is what's going to keep our anger and hatred and everything else fueled. So we talk a lot about feminine leadership on this podcast, and I'm of the belief that women do lead differently. I'm curious if that's something that you believe as well. And If yes, would you feel comfortable calling it feminine leadership? Yeah, so I think this notion of feminine and masculine leadership, I I teach a course here at Duke on social identities, and one of our classes actually focuses on leadership and what being a leader actually means as an identity. And the word leader is masculine based on these norms, how we talk about who a leader is, what they do. And so the way I think about it is, I don't like that we have to call things masculine and feminine in the first place when it comes to leadership should be gender neutral, but it's not. And I wish that wasn't the case. Where I think women and and male leaders lead differently is this notion of the interconnectedness, the ability to make sure that you're engaged in mentoring others. There's a lot of academic research in higher ed that shows that women are better able to connect their coworkers, for example, or students within a classroom. And that level of engagement and mentorship we don't see as often with male leaders. It's possible and some male leaders do it, but to me that's the the biggest difference is this belief in oneself to help others around you. And I, I hate the nature nurture, women as caregivers, men not, right? I, I'm not an endorser of any of that, but I do think that women have this kind of social ability to connect others that men don't often practice within workplace and other leadership type settings. And to me, that's the biggest thing that I I wish everyone would practice in leadership positions is really just taking a moment to perspective take a little bit for the people that you are leading. Anecdotally, do you see more women or men drawn to the kind of research that you're doing? 
the big bias is more women than men tend to identify as multiracial. So I have this kind of built in gender bias in my own research on who resonates with my work, who shows up for my studies. I do think that my work looking particularly at the emotions people experience with these identity denial, we know men struggle a lot, right? They're told to wear this emotional mask all the time. And that's where, again, I think this leadership difference can come into play between men and women. And so the fact that I have men who do show up for my studies and we look at how identity denial makes them feel, I see it as sometimes their first time trying to cope and grapple with those emotions that they're facing because of their identities and questioning that they faced. And yeah, I think those are some of the things that I've noticed. I think women and men tend to speak up differently about their identities as well in the studies that we've done. Women tend to try and socially connect a little more with the person who maybe is questioning them. Men tend to fight back a little more directly against whatever that identity accusation may be. So there's this other interwoven intersectionality pieces too, I think, based on the racial backgrounds you are and your gender and these expectations of masculinity in our society too. I'm thinking about from the, yeah, the notions of masculine as formed by the patriarchy. And also then for some reason, I'm going to how your value is as a man, because one thing I when I used to be on online dating sites is I would find that people of certain cultures who were in my mind, ethnic of a different kind of you know, nationality than they were non-white, let's put it this way. They would identify as white in their dating profile. If it wasn't selected, if it wasn't available for them to choose and Also, I thought that was so interesting. And I know oftentimes that research will show that white men can have more value in certain situations because they're perceived to be higher income earners and blah, 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 blah. So it changes the focus for who you are even as a a human by how you identify. And that's, again, I'm just, this is a question that just is so personal for me and so upsetting on so many levels, but it is just stupid, for lack of a better word, you know, that we are stuck according to what the culture prescribes for us when the culture actually is its own entity, has little to do with our humanity much of the time. Yeah, and it's all based on our reference groups. Um, America and the United States, as moving here, we're very centered on an American as a white, straight man who believes mm-hmm. in God of some kind. And if you're mm-hmm. not one of those categories, you're automatically deprivileged, right, in our society. We don't speak English. And these kinds of things that I think a lot of people, they don't talk about it correctly, especially growing up as a kid. And so when I get lots of questions about, well, how do we talk to our kids? Or what can we do to make our world a better place going forward? My number one response is to, A, always let your kids identify how they want to identify, right, without that felt pressure, because we know that's what leads to depression and anxiety and frustration, But B, to make sure that we talk to all kids about the different privileges they have, right? White privilege is one of those that we need to start talking about, but there's other privileges other kids have as well. And I think the more well-versed we are as a society in recognizing what privileges we do have and what privileges we don't have will help us make those changes in reducing these inequities that we see in our data all the time. I'd like to also introduce the idea of intrinsic value because this conversation of privilege has weight because we've been so disconnected from our intrinsic value as humans. And if we can lead, I believe, from that perspective, then this notion of privilege, because privilege gets me, like, I I understand, I was not willing at first to accept that I had privilege by virtue of that, because I was like, I had to work and I did this. And then I was like, no, okay, then I got it, right? But then now I'm also like, 
that somebody else would have more privilege than me annoys me to think that the idea that I am not intrinsically valuable according to some other person's assessment is something I actually refuse to accept and is why I think is the only reason I feel like I have survived in many cases because I was raised by a single mom, black father. It was the seventies. It was the beginning of the time of this now looking back, but in that moment, it was a very isolating experience. But again, the only thing that I believe preserved me during it was that I had my own inner identity that I was going to stick with. Yeah, regardless I, of what others said. Yeah. Feeling positive about yourself, right? That sense of belonging. It's this fundamental nature where we just want to feel like people. We just want to feel seen and heard for who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's those questioning, the devaluing that so many people face in our society that leads to these mental health outcomes for so many minority groups in particular, right? Because it's this constant questioning and this constant lack of belonging that we know plagues everyone. We ask everyone to complete the question, my wish for every other woman is? My wish for every other woman is to feel seen, value, and heard. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Thank you.